What's up? This is Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. And we have a very cool program for you today. Two absolute rock and roll legends in conversation recorded live here in New York City at the iconic Strand bookstore, television's Richard Lloyd, and the Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club's Chris Franz. I just love it when you have two guys who've known each other for years who dive into the stories of the good old days. And these two do go a ways back, back to the 70s in New York City, where punk was founded, specifically at the club CBGB's. A lot of stories in this talk about that club. And listeners, if you're unaware, if you've been living under a rock all your lives, that's the club in the Bowery. Should we do it together? Ramones. Blondie. Talking Heads. Television. Patti Smith. I mean, I'm telling you, this is where punk started. And these two were a part of that. Chris Franz, of course, the legendary drummer for the Talking Heads. An absolute game-changing band fronted by David Byrne, which also included Chris Franz's wife, Tina Weymouth. You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. And Tina and Chris were both founding members of Tom Tom Club. Love Tom Tom Club. Nick, we must, must, must play just a quick clip of Genius of Love. Such great stuff. Now, Richard Lloyd grew up in New York, famously co-founded television with Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell. just published his autobiography. It's called Everything is Combustible, Television, CBGBs, and Five Decades of Rock and Roll, The Memoirs of an Alchemical Guitarist. Quite a title. Quite a title. And quite a guy. Quite a guy. And now to celebrate the release of the book, Chris Franz sat down with Richard Lloyd at the Strand to extract some of the amazing stories that Lloyd's lived through. Right. I mean, you know, you can go from blowing up a Chinese laundry to like (laughs) hanging out with Jimi Hendrix when he was probably just a teenager. He hung out with Jimi Hendrix backstage in the studio. Huge. He had an impromptu guitar lesson from one of my favorite guitarists ever, John Lee Hooker. Pretty incredible. Wow. Listeners, you'll hear those stories and so many more, including the beginnings of television. Why he first started taking drugs. And everything he's up to now. Here's Chris and Richard's conversation in full and an abbreviated version of the Q&A featuring Tina Weymouth. But first, let's start with Richard Lloyd reading an excerpt from his own book. Hello, everybody. This, this is Chris and Tina Franz's uh, personal copy. I'm going to read a short chapter from when I was younger, called The Whole World is Sex, Chapter 12. Everybody has epiphanies, those moments where you see something deeply. 
an aspect of super-reality that lifts you out of your horizontal daydream. I'm not kidding when I say that perhaps I had a kind of epilepsy. Grand mal, petite mal, weird mal. The terms come from French and mean big bad, little bad, in my case, weird bad. I didn't think it was bad, and I don't think I ever lost consciousness. I never fell down and had convulsions, but I might have floated off somewhere, gotten glassy eyes, and drifted to the edge of the universe. I could look back on the earth from a vast distance. Well, I was sitting in class one day in the fifth grade when one struck me. It was before puberty. I can't remember what the teacher said. It was nothing provocative, just some ordinary something about something connected with something that we were supposed to learn about something when it happened. They say epilepsy is a kind of electrical storm in the brain. If so, this was a pretty good-sized thunderstorm. I looked at the child in front of me, a red-haired girl, when I suddenly realized that she was the result of sex between her parents. I don't know how I can convey to you the surety of that understanding that she was the result of sex, that she was made out of sex, 100% sex. I turned my head and looked at another child and had the same realization. I looked all around the room and all I could see were packages of sex. Then I imagined even further throughout the school building, the neighborhood, the city, the state, the country, the continent, the whole world. Everybody in it and everything in it was completely and thoroughly made of sex. And then I had another realization. There's a lot of sex that does not result in children. If children are the result of sex, what is the result of sex that doesn't result in children? <laughs> I started running statistics. There are seven billion people on planet Earth all having sex or trying to have sex and all made out of sex. What percentage of sex results in the birth of children? Each child might represent a package of concentrated sex, <laughs> compounded by all the sex that their parents had had between conceptions. The whole world was packed like an overloaded and an overinflated canister of oxygen, and the canister was filled with sex. The question became, does everybody get packed with the same amount of sex like tuna cans? Sometimes when I looked at women on the street, I could see the weight of the sex that they were carrying around, and I would ask myself, how does she do it? How does she carry around all that sex? Isn't it heavy? Other people seemed lighter, so I had to ask myself, is the sex hidden, or did they get less at the factory? If your parents screwed a lot, but they only had one child as a result, does that child have more sex as a result? Does the screwing pack it in? Or does it spill out so the child gets less? My brain became a world of questions and ponderings. The entire earth, a canister of sexual pressure, the enormity of which squeezed so hard that babies popped out all over the earth like bubbles on the surface of a large pot of boiling water. I could barely think. I was overloaded with this vision. For several weeks, I could not look at anybody without seeing this deep impression that the whole world was sex. In fact, although I managed to tone it down, <laughs> this impression has never left me. And when I look at you, I have to prevent that vision from overtaking me. It doesn't make me feel sexually aroused, it's just pure science, pondering and realization. And that is something I cannot get rid of.
Do these work? Yeah. Excellent reading. Oh, thank you, sir. Chris Franz, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know how many shows we did together with the, his band and my band, but uh, it was many, as they say. One, two, and many. We used to do double bills together at CBGB's. That's right. Two sets of pieces. We always let you guys close the show. Oh, you because did. Because <laughs> you were there first. That's right. But we got paid 50-50. We split the door 50-50, and there was four of you and three of us. I remember uh, the first time we played there, we earned a dollar a piece, and I said, that makes us professional musicians. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Wonderful times. Oh, Wonderful my God. Times. And, and now it's a clothing store. Life is full of twists and turns, right? It, oh, yeah. And sure I know is. you've had... Like my we, share. Anybody who's been playing guitar for... How, how 40, many? Only yeah. 40 years. It's a good investment. And making records for 40 years, right? No, so, well, I played yeah. guitar for a number of years before I got to make a record. Yeah, sure. I practiced. Anyway, my point is anybody who's done that has had ups and downs and... Ins and outs. Ins and outs. And, and, uh, and, and But here we are, authors. And here we are, that's right. <laughs> and Chris has got a book coming out. Well, sometime in the near future or the we, middle future. We hope so. Yeah, we hope so. So uh, thank you all for joining us. I, uh, the book is great, Richard. Everything oh, is you. combustible. Everything it, is funny. It's, it's tonight. <laughs> my hat's off. So let's ask some questions. Okay. Why did you start taking drugs? Well, they showed some films about the horrors of drugs. And all of my friends and me just thought it made us much more interested in these uh, things, that if you took them, you became all of these magical things all at once. You became a chemist, a doctor, a mystic, a criminal, all rolled into one package. And I remember I asked myself some questions, like I researched drug taking at the New York Public Library. And I read all sorts of books about people who got, you know, their whole lives went down the toilet. And I thought, this is like standing in a toilet and pushing flush. Can you prevent yourself from going down? And, I th and my answer came back, no. And then I asked myself, well, great art sometimes comes out of the centrifugal force that's oppositional to the centripetal force that's pulling you down? Uh -huh. Well, am I going to spill out great art? And the answer came back, I don't know. And then I asked myself, well, are you going to do it anyway? And the answer came back, yes. <laughs> and that's why I took drugs to begin with. And there was also this idea that it would expand your mind. That's right. I wanted that, that more was, life. That was very appealing, at least yes. to me, when I was, I don't know, 14, right. 15. Me too. Yeah. It made everything more colorful. It made everything funny. It made everything wonderful for a long, long time. Yeah. Until it didn't. Until it didn't. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> By the way, neither of us are high at the moment. No. I'm high on life. <laughs> Probably okay. still stoned. So not too many people in this room actually knew Jimi Hendrix, I don't think. 
but you did. And uh, how did you happen to meet him? We were at a friend's house waiting for hashish. <laughs> and instead of hashish, this uh, little scrawny black guy from Brooklyn came in named Velvert Turner. His real name was Velvet on his birth certificate, like Velvet with an R. And he claimed to know Jimi Hendrix, and I looked at him and I thought, he does. <laughs> and he called Jimmy at the hotel and passed the phone around because it kept ringing. And when I got it, Jimmy picked up and said, hey, man, who is this? What's happening, man? In that inimitable voice of his, and I went, uh, it's Velvet, Jimmy. And I handed the phone to him, and we went to a concert he was doing out in Queens that night. And uh, we began following him around and other rock people around. I'd already been to backstage. There was a trick you could pull going to the sound check before security got there and asking the band, hey, Jerry Garcia, can you put me on your guest list? And he says, no, my guest list is full of professional people, but Phil might have, hey, Phil, Phil Lesh, you know? <laughs> You got room? He says, I don't know anybody in New York. I'll put the kid down. So that happened a lot, you know. I don't think you can do it anymore. So don't come to my show doing that. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a great bit in your book about uh, when you met John Lee Hooker. Oh, God, yeah. Who I love, you know. Uh, we love John. Tell us a little bit a little bit about what John Lee Hooker told you about guitar playing. Well, it was 1970. I went to the jazz workshop in Boston. He was playing, and he hadn't come on yet, so I walked back and walked into the dressing room and sat down and was completely quiet, and I thought I was invisible, and he was talking to somebody, and then he turned and pointed at me. He says, um, what's your name, Sonny? I said, it's Richard. He says, Richie? I don't let anybody call me Richie except my wife and uh, anybody that does now. Anyway, he said, I said, what you do? I said, well, I play guitar. He said, are you good? I said, I don't know, you know, I'm mezzo-mezzo. And he says, no, you're great. Come on over here, I'll tell you the secret of playing the electric guitar. So I went over and he cupped his hands and he said, Richie, all them cats playing six strings ain't worth shit. I'll tell you the secret of playing the electric guitar. You take off all the string but one, and you learn that one string up and down and down and up, and you bend it and shake it till the woman go, woo <laughs> Then you put a second string on, and you learn them up and down and down and up and on the side, and you bend them and shake it until the woman go, woo and the men go, ha. Ah. <laughs> By the time you get the six strings, Richie, you'll be a, a master of the guitar. So I went home and I uh, practiced on one string. Well, Jimmy had already taught us that, but I didn't take off the other five strings because I couldn't afford to. Oh, and he made me play with him. He said, yeah. I'm going to call you up and you're going to jam with the band, man. You're going to play with the band. I said, no, no, no. You know, put cymbals between my knees. So... He says, no, I'm going to turn the lights on and call you up, and, and if you leave the club, I'm going to send somebody after you. <laughs> so then he was playing, and uh, I thought, oh, I'm free. He didn't uh, call me up, and then all of a sudden he goes, and I'm going to bring up a new, young, starting-out guitar player, Richie Lloyd. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he took me around the 
12 bar blues three times and all the other musicians are rolling their eyes, you know, like, oh, John, this kid. And uh, that was that. Super cool. It was super cool. Yeah. I was once in a line behind him to check into a very posh hotel, John Lee Hooker, and I really? thought, wow, he's really well-dressed, you know? <laughs> he was. Dapper. He had a hat kind of like yours, in fact. <laughs> but uh, I thought, I hope they don't give him any trouble, you know, mm-hmm. when he's checking it. And they didn't because he whipped out one of those black American Express cards. Oh, and they meant I mean? something. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, back to Jimi Hendrix, um, I understand you were actually in the studio with him. Yeah, and there were no drugs or that I saw. It was very was business Was this Electric Lady? No, he never, I don't think he ever recorded at Electric Lady, his own studio. Uh-huh. He was at the record plant. Uh-huh. And Gary Milt, Gary, not Eddie Kramer, but Gary was there. Uh-huh. I can't remember his last name properly, so I won't tell you what it is. And Jimmy was there, and I went in with Devin and Esmeralda. The, and there were three black girls that used to hang around Jimmy. I went in with them, and he would let a group of people come in, and they would listen back to the stuff they'd done the day before. And you know how they used to put the reel, store the reels at the end? Yeah. So he told the engineer to put it on backwards, and I, we heard an eight-minute version of Isabella backwards and then he started talking to the engineer about he had this idea for a song where it would go four bars forward four bar the backing track would go four bars forward four bars backwards eight bars forward eight bars backwards and the engineer's face fell because it would be like a year of cutting tape and he said jimmy that's it's impossible we can't do this and everybody was like oh you could do it digitally now but sure. you, you can't, easy with Pro Tools, but uh, no, this was the days of tape. And then when they actually got started to work on either vocals or guitars, then everybody was asked to leave very politely. And it was very nice, you know, a real special experience in my life. I understand he, he uh, could be volatile, uh, with people around him? Very, very rarely. Once we were walking up, this is not in the book, but we were walking up to the Fillmore East to go in the stage door, and there was a kid on the hood of a guitar, a hood of a car playing guitar, and Jimmy went off on him. Went like, you should be home with your mama. What are you doing out here at night, you know, playing a guitar in a car? You know, you can't play guitar. And anyway, he once socked me a couple times, but then he cried on me and to make it up uh, by apologizing. And that's in the book, so you have to yeah. read it. Yeah. Okay. When did you first see Tom Verlaine, and what did you see in him? Well, we, Terry Ork. Is Tom little, here? Yeah, I don't know. He's probably outside looking at the dollar book racks. <laughs> He's loaned me a few of those. Anyway, um, Terry Ork, I was living with Terry in Chinatown, and he said, there's a guitarist that does what you do. And I said, well, what the hell do I do? You know, how dare you tell me what I do? He says, well, you play guitar by yourself. 
And there's this guitarist who plays by himself, and he's going to play at Reno Sweeney's, which was this um, supper club with palm, fake plastic palm trees. And, an aud- you know, people would go there f- off-Broadway and uh, wannabe Broadway singers and Liza Minnelli and Peter Lemongello and people like that. And they had an audition night where you could have 10 minutes, and he was one of the performers that had the 10 minutes. And uh, I broke a string at about a quarter to eight because I wasn't going to go, and I said, all right, what the hell? And we took a cab up there and went in and met Richard uh, Myers, Richard Hell, at the door with his girlfriend, and we all took a table, and the waitress came over and said, two drink minimum, so we ordered all the drink. We're only here for 10 minutes, two drink minimum. So we had a table full of drinks, and then Tom came. He played three songs, and he had those long, lanky fingers, somewhat like Jimmy. I mean, he didn't play like Jimmy, but he played, I think he played Venus de Milo and uh, two other songs, but the Venus was the second song, and I leaned over to Terry, and I said, Forget about putting a band together around me. Put him and me together. You'll have the band you're looking for. And he talked to Richard, who was best friends with Tom. And Richard talked to Tom, and they came down to visit at Chinatown. And we passed my guitar back and forth, Tom and I. And uh, they went off to chat. Hush, hush. Are we going to take this guy or what? I was like, am I going to take you? I'm this big city guy. You, you guys come from the Hayseed country. But anyway, they came back and said, all right, let's, Tom said, yeah, let's try it. And that was the beginning of television. Then we talked about drummers, and he said, I have a great drummer in Boston. But the minute Billy Ficker came down, he was like complaining about him. So he, he said, about the first week, he called me over and he said, uh, I think I made a big mistake. He used to be a great dr- rock drummer. Now he's like a jazz drummer. And I said, but all the great guitarists have had crazy drummers. You know, if you look at all the classic great guitarists, they've always had mad, insane drummers. And so I was stood up for Billy. And he still auditioned other people when um, Billy went to Delaware for Christmas to visit his father. But nobody could replace Billy. My God, what a hi-hat. Yes. Yeah, uh, somebody was saying there were a lot of really good drummers at CBGB's, but what I remember is that everybody had a different style. That's true. All well, the, every, all the every drummers. band had a different style, yeah, too. Yeah, every, every band, but drum, drummers in particular were, were really diverse in their, their yeah, playing. Really. But, well, you were always great. Clem Burke was great. Well, And uh, Billy was great, so it was like, with that kind of drive, I, I, behind I used you. to I used to watch Billy play, and I'd think, "How what did the, he think of that? What the hell is he doing?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> play that yeah. famous "Billy Falls Down a Flight of Stairs," <laughs> Phil. I call it. You know, uh, Terry Ork was. Um, I love Terry. Bless his heart. He was. Yeah. He was very instrumental and helpful. Yep. Not just to television, but no, to a lot of bands, particularly television. Well, um, he was officially our manager at yeah. the beginning. What was your relationship with Terry? Like the deepest of friends. He chased me around the bed, but didn't catch me. <laughs> you know, and then he had a boyfriend. But he had a huge 
what do you call those lofts that go through? Floor through. Floor through. But it had a room in the front, which was mine. And then he slept in the back. So it was just friendship and uh, I was around. Uh-huh. I remember uh, Seymour Stein telling me, I really want to do business with Terry Ork, but he's always laughing. <laughs> yes, he had a great sense of humor. A real uh, a Marxist, uh, anarchist, you know, he wanted to create a scene, and by God, he did. He sure did, yeah. I got his box set, the Orton oh, that, Records box yeah, set. Yeah, I have that too. Yeah. I'm on a couple of tracks and produced the, the Erasers track. That was great fun. I love that yeah. song, those yeah. two songs. Yeah. They, we should have done a whole album. They were something. He tried to sign the B-52s, but they went with Warner Brothers. What dud. <laughs> yeah, that's in the book. Yeah. What, uh, the chapter Atlantic. about the, the they hats. Were, they, <laughs> Jerry Wessler wanted to sign us, and uh, Ahmed Erdogan said, I, Jerry, I can't sign this. He's a Turkish guy, little guy. He says, Jerry, I can't sign this band. This is not Earth music. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes ever given not about television. Music. It's not Earth music. <laughs> okay, let's get into the serious stuff now. Oh. How in the hell did you manage to blow up a Chinese laundry? Well, the chapter after the world of sex is about chemistry and valence and that the whole, all the universe is trying to hook up. You know, two hydrogens, they have a menage de trois with an oxygen, and it turns out the water. And, and my best friend, one of, you know, I had a lot of best friends, but my friend was a Chinese guy named Gen Mao, Gen, I'm going to say Gen Mao Ling, which is a Chinese medicine for colds. Right. No, uh, I have to look his name up. Anyway, Eng, we were chemists, and we used to go to the, on Hudson Street, you could go buy chemists. And if you said you were getting stuff for the school, they'd give you anything. So we used to throw lithium in, in buckets of water and watch it go crazy. And one time we were at his parents' Chinese laundry on West 4th Street. And we were trying to mix uh, phosphorus with gunpowder <laughs> in order, I don't know what to blow up, but we blew ourselves up. It went off. There was a little, I was tapping it off of, card the phosphorus and it the little cloud formed you know why they hose down construction sites to prevent explosions oh, yeah. like it blew up on all of a sudden it was just like poof i couldn't hear anything i'm covered with blood i walk out there's nothing but smoke and there was a fire he put out with his hands and arms you know and uh, we tried to put band-aids and then we had to go to the hospital anyway and uh, we blew up the Chinese laundry. And that week, it was ticky no laundry because it destroyed some of those, you know, they put them in the brown paper. Yeah. Yeah, some of the shirts got burned off. Man, you're, you're lucky you're I alive. never saw him again after that. His parents clamped down. It was like yeah. a year. <laughs> put him in another school. No more science. No, well, he's probably a, works at, probably get a Nobel for chemistry or some physics or something. He was a great guy. Amazing. Yeah. 
I still have pieces of phosphorus in my arms and on my chest because they said, we can't actually take these out because if any gets in your bloodstream, it'll kill you. I said, well, then take it out. They (laughs) They said, well, we can't. It'll just encapsulate. And so I have these little bumps on my arm. I'll show you later. <laughs> wow. How was the music scene in 1977 here in New York different to how you perceive the music scene in New York today? Oh, God. Well, 77 was the beginning of the end because all the bands that were there in 75 and 6 and then 7 were beginning to get record deals. And after you got a record deal, you had to go on tour, so you couldn't play CBs. And then you got big, and you couldn't play CBs anymore. So, but my God, it was so many bands, I mean, and so many of them did well. You know, your band, and Blondie, and Mink DeVille, and all different stuff. Dead Boys, and uh, The Shirts, and God, God knows, there were so many bands. and. You know, CBGB's is the only place where you could walk in and say, I got a band, and Hilly would, and Terry would say, well, we'll give you a night, and you'll be on the bill, and then we'll figure out if you belong in the roster. And then uh, we would decide if they belonged in the roster or if they had to keep moving. But there were so many bands, and today... You go to a place and there's eight bands on the bill and they want to know who you're there to see. And that guy, I played for like 500 people and I get paid for 18 people because people behind me say, tell them you're here to see us. And people before me said, tell them you're here to see us and you'll get to see Richard Lloyd for free. And, you know, it's pay for play, really. And it's not, it's sad. Well, and, and also... In Brooklyn, anyway, there are many venues where oh, bands Brooklyn, are playing. Mike in our day, there was two. None. One. One, then two, then in maybe My father's maybe place. Three. Well, that was out on Long, out on Long Island. Long Island. Yeah. I'm thinking of... Well, I never left Manhattan for 30 years, ex- yeah. except my father's place. We went to my father's place once, and I, I mm. Tina and I, in, in, our, in our Valiant, remember... <laughs> remember a muscle car? Tina's, Tina's Plymouth Valiant. It was not a muscle car. It no, was like I don't a sewing know machine. cars. But, a sewing but, machine. It, television, right. talking heads... Patty Smith and the Ramones all played the same day. Can you yeah, imagine? That, that's the kind and, of. And we gave Tom a ride, and it was <laughs> for some reason. You remember Tina? And, and Did Tom, he read a dollar book Tom on said, the way? Tom, it was looking kind of stormy and cloudy, and Tom mm. said, "If there's lightning, I'm not playing." Yeah. <laughs> I said, "Tom, you'll be indoors. You don't. It's not an outdoor show." He said, "Nope." If there's lightning, I'm not playing. I, if he got a spark off the mic, you know, I once was singing and I got sparks off the mic, so I had to say, you know, and I kept getting my lip, but and then, then wine and urine dripped down from the upstairs. The second floor was a flop house. Yeah. On my mic, and a fly decides to land on my mic, and then the fly decides to land on me, on my nose, and I'm playing like this. Until I'm bashing myself in the face. Uh, Tom was, if Tom got a spark, he wouldn't play, you know. Right. He was like, somebody else test it with the, you know. I I understand that uh, 
I guess a few people have been electrocuted to death, you know, playing rock and roll, but... Yeah. <laughs> that's not, not enough not too to many, keep though. me from playing. Not... not yeah. Um, okay. This is serious. This is serious This now. is serious. Yeah. When, when did you become spiritual? When I was born. Ah. I was born an adult who had to pretend to be a baby. And then I had to pretend to be a child. And then I had to pretend to be a teenager. And then I became grown up and I didn't want to grow up. And I didn't want to be a man. They stunk. As far as I was concerned, men suck. They still do. Many of them into football and beer and all the things I don't, and TV and, you know, what are you going to do? I think people don't grow up. They remain, they're id, they stay id-like. Not even the ego. Ego is necessary to live in the world. But the id, that's the one that goes, mine, gimme. You know, when you're like two years old and there's part of them that's still two years old, so I like avoid them, you know, best I can. You've read a lot of spiritual philosophy uh, and stuff. The world's... Gurdjieff and... Gurdjieff, uh, yeah, I follow Gurdjieff still. He's my teacher, as it were. And I spent 15 years with the Gurdjieff Foundation of New York that you can't find. I don't know how I found them. Huh. You can't find them. It's Christianity, as many are called and few are chosen. In the Gurdjieff work, which is called the work, nobody is called, but if you find them, they put you to work. Interesting. But I've read up on, I was just reading the uh, Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, another translation earlier today on my phone because we don't have any, uh, I don't have a computer. I just have the phone at my hotel. So sad. <laughs> Smartphone, though. Smarter than me. <laughs> um. You live in the countryside now in Tennessee. How did that it, happen? Isn't it great, though? Isn't it, it is great. great. Yeah. It really is great. I mean, you don't get knocked down by people walking on the street. It's really lovely. It's a beautiful city. It's, I would never have moved there because of the name. Never in a million years. Chattanooga. <laughs> Tennessee. Like with the Chattanooga choo-choo. My wife's parents live there, and they're in their 90s. My mother lives in Sedona, Arizona. I'm oh, not, nice. It's gorgeous, but I'm not going to go there because there's, like, nothing to do except look for UFOs <laughs> and, like, get crazy weird, you know, conspiracy groups. But Tennessee is wonderful. We're, like, halfway between Nashville and Atlanta. Did I just have a southern accent for, like, one word? Atlanta. I hope. Not. I hope. Not. Well, you know, we used to look down our nose. We downtown New Yorkers look used Absolute. to look down our nose at people Absolutely. who lived in the country, but now, now it's, we changed our mind. That's right. Our minds were changed for us by the abstract flow of time. Uh, do you recall a night in Glasgow, <laughs> Scotland, Glasgow? Oh, yeah. When, Which one? When Ramones and Talking Heads 
and television and Blondie were, were, it was a double bill, Ramones, Talking Heads in one theater. Yeah, and, and we another were with theater, Blondie in another. Television and Blondie, Blondie opening. Same night oh. in Glasgow. Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, they were both, I'm sure, packed to I the think both, both were sold out. Yeah, both, both yeah. we played at 2,000 seat theaters in England because our record had done very well there in the press. They think of they, you, we you guys think, were we think hero England, worshipped, yeah, by the press. Well, we were, yeah, we are, we yeah. still are, yeah. For that first record, you know, it's like the Doors' first record or Hendrix's first record. It's yeah, a first record reason. to live the, the ages with, but um, England is tiny. I mean, it's the size of Con- your home state can now Connecticut. But yeah. things that go big in England, we America thinks is the same size. So, like, you go over there and you get big and you come back here and everybody's all gaga. I remember we, we, we discovered when we went there that we thought, oh, punk music is the rage, the rage, everybody's a punk. And they're but it was really like you. about 30 or maybe 50 <laughs> people going right. to every show and they all... Yeah. Yeah. Making they and they were making headlines every night. That's true. Yeah. They were the ones that wore safety pins through their jaws and you know, we didn't do any of yeah. that stuff. And no, that, all no, their songs no. are political. I don't can't think of a single political song of the New York bands. I just can't think of any. Maybe there were some, but I didn't hear them. You had yeah. one that was semi. Don't, don't semi. worry about the government. Yeah, don't worry about the government. That's different. <laughs> that was That's more like about... I want to sniff some glue. Don't worry about the government. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, oh, speaking of England, did you ever play with television? Did, did you ever play uh, Eric's in Liverpool? No, we never played it in Liverpool. It was across the street from where the cavern used to be. Wow. And it was exactly the same And the cavern is another structure as the cavern. Like CBGB's, right? Well, it was, it was. down in a basement in and a it basement was with it was no more, windows. It was more like uh well, it was brick and it was <laughs> like like an oven arches and uh no ventilation. Arnold. No ventilation, no. so when you played down there, it got it was, steamy. It got, yeah, it was dripping. Every everything. Oh my god! Everybody was dripping. Yeah, I played yeah. a cave in Norway like that. Cool. We used to, they used to use it as a bomb shelter in World War II, and it turned into a venue in uh, not in Norway, <laughs> in Bergen, Norway. <laughs> we played Trumso. No, I played there on my own. Inside the Arctic Circle, that was fun. Um, this is a question. How do you see the world? What is your view of the world? I like the Earth. Yeah? The world is a place you have to endure. Being in the world is, is what they call agony, which translated from the Greek means trial. It's a trial, and it's also an adventure. And I love experience, no matter whether you, th- whether other people think that it's good or bad. I just love experience. And being in a mental hospital, state mental hospital, uh, you know, tied down to a gurney for two weeks is exciting to me. 
So that's what I think of the world. Was anybody tied down with you on that journey? No, thank, uh. thank God. There was a guy tied down that uh, tried to reach out to everybody's genitals. And oh. it was a good thing he was tied down. Well, I was just tied down for being wacko. I never hurt anybody. I just went, went manic. I had manic depression, uh-huh. a frustrating mess. Yeah. You're, do, you're doing well and looking well and really productive now. <laughs> it seems that way. Yeah. It's yeah. an illusion, isn't it? No, I think it's yeah. very real. Yeah. Uh, some trees bear fruit young, and some trees bear fruit old, and some trees have a season. So I guess I'm coming into my season, second, third, fourth, fifth round. And it's a very, very good experience. I love it. I love being alive. Being breathing is just cool. I agree. Yeah. Um, this is my last question, and then we'll turn it over to the uh, audience. audience to ask questions. Excellent. But uh, the question is this. Do you have any regrets that no. you, you would care to discuss? No. No? No. No regrets. I have some remorse which is, you got to look them up and looking at the sources. It's not regret. I don't regret anything because it's like a water slide. You're in it and you're going and you can't, there's no way to halt it. Time just does that thing for you. And uh, all experience is good experience. I'm sorry if other people don't agree, but it doesn't matter to me. Cool. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, I've done things that I have remorse about. Would you care to tell me something that you have remorse about? Well, one time I was stoned and I decided to ride my bicycle and my grandmother tried to block the door. I pushed her out of the way. Very sad. And then I I rode half a block and crashed into a tree and brought the bike back all in a shambles. I said, Grandma, you were right. And I don't know what happened, but she once washed my mouth out with an actual bar of ivory soap. This is when I was very little, and I must have said a boo-boo word. You know, the adults used. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chris, those are very insightful questions. Thank you. I worked very hard on them. I'm sure. Thanks, everybody, for coming by. Thank you. Hey, Richard. Hey, how you What's doing? Up, buddy? It's your old friend, Jared. You're so far away. But, <laughs> well, you know. um, so this one of the best stories that I've always thought that you told me back in the day when I was taking lessons didn't make the book, and I thought it would be great for you to tell it now, which is I was coming into a lesson one day with a Richard Pryor record under my arm, and you said Richard Pryor almost killed me, which I That's immediately right. assumed was a drug thing, but it's what even better than that, and I thought it would be great to hear it since well, it didn't my, make the book. My mother was an actress who didn't get very much work, and my father was a film editor, my stepfather, that is, and they had a comedian come over for dinner one day, and he told a joke, and I started laughing, and I folded, it folded me over my face into the mashed potatoes. And I suddenly thought that was the funniest thing I'd ever done or heard. And my mother said, oh, come off it. 
It wasn't that funny, and that was funny to me. And I ended up rolling off the chair and crawling into the living room, and I, and I was gasping for breath, and I thought, that was funny. And then I thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> and I thought, that was funny. And, like, I'm laughing myself to death. And that was funny. And it was like nothing that wasn't funny. And then I suddenly realized, Richard, you, you got to get a grip and take a breath, you know. And it's like, let this go. And so I did. But I've almost laughed myself to death a couple of times. I might do it tonight. <laughs> um, I don't know you, and I haven't read the book yet. Maybe this is in there. But um, at one of your shows, you were pulling the strings. It was one of my great rock and roll moments. Oh, yeah? You were pulling the string off of your, strings off of your guitar in some kind of an insane solo. And Tom was, like, <laughs> looking at you like this. And I was slightly afraid for you. And they wanted the rest me of the to audience, do that every night uh, thereafter. That's it. I was going to ask you. Um, I really thought that it was a... Like a moment, you know, like a, yeah. an off-the-cuff sort of a thing. But I, it probably was. That was probably the first time. <laughs> but I read. Cool. But Chris Gow had written about it the next day and said that he saw you do it twice. And I thought, oh, yeah. oh I no! I started doing it regularly. And really? When I couldn't do any more, I would tune the string all the way down, take it off the neck, and play it like a sitar with just put by yanking on it and picking it. That's like what Jimmy told you to do, right? Or Basically, John sort yeah. of, yeah. I didn't smash it. I didn't light it on fire. Did you, know. you ever do that? Did you ever go out of control, like while you were doing a solo? Tom did once. His jazz master started falling apart, and he ended up at Mother's on 23rd Street. It was this. You remember Mother's? Yeah. My mother went to Mother's to watch us play. <laughs> That's a little story. And Tom went nuts and uh, pulled all the pulled the strings off his one by one. And then knocked the amp down, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And I'm looking at him like he's gone bonkers. Hi, Richard. Thank you. Um, hey, thank you. Is there any reason why you and Robert Quine didn't play together on a Matthew Sweet's album? We're on one song, uh, but we didn't play the solo. Matthew liked the solos from both of us so much, he left both of them on. But we didn't play at the same time because Matthew would hire us and fly us to where the studio was, and he couldn't afford to have both of us at the same time. That's really the only reason. So he would pick songs from each album for me and then pick songs from each album for Bob. And that's it's really that simple. There's a picture. I think there's one in, in the on the website of the book. Oh, no. No, that's Cheetah Chrome. There's a picture of uh, Bob and me playing together at CB's at one of these uh, jam nights. Somewhere. I've seen it recently. Oh, no, here it is. That's right. Here's me and Cheetah Chrome and Jonathan Paley and Bob Quine all on stage. Oh, you took the photo. No wonder you, you know what it was. <laughs> Congratulations. David took the front picture when I was in the hospital and I invited him over and I started to light a cigarette in front of the oxygen tank and he said, <gasps> and I said, no, take the picture, take the picture. You know, oxygen doesn't burn. Carbon and uh, hydrogen will burn. The cigarette would have burned like, 
But, uh, and I might have burned up, but it was a good move. And it's, I knew then the book was going to be called Everything is Combustible. And that was like 30 years ago. So. Hi, Richard. Hi. This is your old friend, Sylvia Reed. Hi. Uh, hey, Sylvia. How are you? I wanted you. A lot to, of your friends are here. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, I uh, wanted you to tell everyone about your painting and oh. about your, when is the next time you're playing here in, in New York? Okay, thank you very much for the, the free publicity. <laughs> We're going to be playing the Bowery uh, Electric on April 6th, my band. And I paint and sell my paintings on Facebook where I have the Richard Lloyd painting page in addition to my own Richard Lloyd page, which I post on like nearly continuously while playing the guitar, <laughs> you know, most every day. And that's that. Hi. Hi. The first time I met you was at Theater for the New City, and my boyfriend was in the Stilettos. He was the drummer. Oh, really? And he said, you're going you're gonna to love Richard Lloyd because he's from Pittsburgh. We both are from Pittsburgh. But I saw you, and you had Please Kill Me on your shirt. Right. And you were a little detached and a little skittish. But um, Yeah, well, I'm, I had two guys come up to me and said, do you really mean it? <laughs> that's what I we, thought. Because we'll help you. <laughs> And I said, no, I'm not wearing that fucking T-shirt again. And Richard Hell put it on his. That's right. where the Please Kill Me came from. Right. And it just, it I played really it impressed once me. At Maxwell. It must have been at Max's Kansas City. It was uh, Theater for the New City and then Max's, yeah. Oh, maybe I wore it twice. But yeah. at Max's, they came up to me and said, we, like with these goo eyes, and said, yeah. we will help you. <laughs> and I thought, oh. Hi there. Um, I've always been fascinated by the song Marquee Moon. Um, can you shed some light about how the guitar interplay on that song developed? My solo break? Well, well, just how the whole orchestration of the guitars, how that interplay developed. Well, it took three years, so... <laughs> I played a number of television songs, including that one, on my own. But was, uh, was Tom Verlaine also instrumental in the back and forth? Was it mostly you? What I mean is that uh, when I listen to that song, it's kind of mysterious. I'm not sure how it's going back and forth, if it's or if it's. He's perfect. playing the rhythm, and I'm doing the twiddle, twiddle, twiddles. So it's it's more traditional than it seems. I'm doing it's the a... trills. Okay, okay. that's right. that. All right. Sorry, I don't mean to be truncated. Hello, Keith. One of my guitarists on Field of Fire. Thank you, in Sweden. <laughs> Keith Patchell. Thanks, Richard. Um, I just wanted to say publicly, I love you very much. You're one of the most amazing musicians and people I've ever met. It was Thank you. such an extraordinary... Well, the love is mutual and... Experience. It's called Boomerang. Boom. Boomerang right. love. So here's my question. What's your, just tell us really quickly about your current like musical thinking and what you're kind of up to, if you want my to. My current musical thinking. I'm trying to organize a new record and... Uh, I'm probably going to do a pledge music to help because there's no record companies left worth diddly unless you're some sort of Broadway semi-pornographic uh, pop thing with dancing and uh, lip syncing and uh, all the rest. And I'm just an old-fashioned rock guy, the rock that doesn't roll. <laughs> so we'll see. And then I'm, they're, they're talking about a live record. They've got a tape they like. And a small company is going to put that out. Then I'm not supposed to say this, so I won't. 
There's a couple of my catalog items coming out on vinyl in the next couple of months, including my favorite, The Radiant Monkey, which has its own philosophy and a whole... That's another hour. Thanks, Keith. Tina France, ladies and gentlemen. Bass player extraordinaire and woman of the uh, decades. You have it written down? Yeah, because oh, I, wow. I have so many questions. Okay. Um, um, you have an amazing memory. Yeah. Did you keep diaries? No. Even when you were stoned, you didn't write no, stuff No, I never kept a diary. I did write notes like, one, like I wrote for a couple of years. I wrote down every single uh, yoga asana that I did in Sanskrit. You know, I do Pachamotanasana followed by Trikonasana followed by, you know, whatever. And I kept, I would keep, then one time I did a dream sort of book, you know, where I'd remember my, what did I dream about last night? I had some of it stay with me. I used to not remember my dreams and then all of a sudden I, I, lately I could, which is cool because it's just another compartment of uh, yourself. So that's nice. Another question from you? You got the mic. Yeah. Um, are you still playing a Fender Telecaster? No, I'm playing a Fender Stratocaster. I've also got a Supro, uh, it's called a Black Holiday. And I like that, played that the last couple uh, shows. I'm probably playing a Stratocaster tomorrow in Hoboken. We're going to do a number of songs at the book signing there at Little City Books. And, uh, yeah, Strat's my main guitar, but people, a couple companies have given me guitars, which I've then enjoyed. I have uh, two, like, sort of uh, George Harrison kind of Gretches. Not Gretsch. What's in there? Eastwood. Eastwood guitars. i got a couple of those. Very sweet. Okay, last question. Which one of the six strings did you start with? Which one of the six? Teaching yourself to work up and down vertically. Oh, it would have been the low E string. Thank you. Work your way across till you get to that weird one that's only on the guitars. You just follow the thing on four strings, you'll be fine. You're already fine. Well, thank you all so much for your question, and thank you very much, uh, both of you, for being here tonight. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Richard. Great Thanks, pleasure. everybody, for showing up. Delightful. Thanks again to The Strand for hosting this fantastic talk. Thank you so much to Chris Franz and Richard Lloyd for allowing us to record it and release it here on The Talk House. Great talk. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's episode, head over to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe. While you're there, rate and review. Every time you do, it helps someone else find the podcast. Also, of course, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, where you can find full video episodes of podcasts recorded live at the flagship Sono store in NYC. I also want to tell you axe swingers out there, you aspiring rock god guitarists, Richard Lloyd actually gives lessons via Skype. You can contact him through his website. You can learn how to play Friction. You can learn how to play Marquee Moon from the man himself. 
That's pretty awesome. Also pretty awesome is talkcast.com where you can find daily written content. Go check it out. This episode was engineered by Mark Yoshizumi with Garrett Carberg and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. AKA Mark the Producer. Till next week, I'm Ali Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson. See you next time. Bye-bye. Ha, ha, ha.